Hi, my name is Kim Metterson, co-dean of Rutgers Law School in Camden, and this is The Power of Attorney. I am absolutely thrilled to have with us today Charles Ray, who is a 2010 graduate of the law school um, here in Camden, who has amazing stories to tell, so we're only going to get bits and pieces of them. Um, but Charles, welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Dean Mutchison. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, so I want to start at the beginning okay. a little bit. Um, recognizing that we're going to have to skip some of the interesting bits in between. But um, so you are born and raised in Camden, New Jersey. That is correct. Born and raised in Camden, New Jersey. Uh, really ne never stepped foot outside of the city until really college. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, born and raised East Camden, Kramer Hill, graduated, made a clean sweep of all the schools. So H.C. Sharp School for elementary, Veterans Memorial for middle school, and Woodrow Wilson High School for high school. And who'd you grow up with? Uh, in terms of... Uh, who raised you? Yeah, so uh, my mother, mm -hmm. uh, single parent, you know, an unfortunately typical uh, scenario uh, where it was my mother and uh, she had eight of us, mm. um, so, you know, pretty big household, uh, and, you know, she, she did the damn thing, yeah. <laughs> because uh, we all turned out pretty well, and, um, yeah, so was, I grew up with my mother. She, she's, she's my primary Fantastic. caregiver. Fantastic, and mm -hmm. I'm sure she's incredibly proud of you, as we all are. <laughs> um, so I was, I was uh, remembering in mm -hmm. anticipation of this conversation, mm -hmm. um, your story of how you went from Camden mm -hmm. to college, mm -hmm. um, which is extraordinary, mm -hmm. um, and started, I believe, with you as a little kid mm -hmm. um, getting a you know, hand-me-down jersey, yes. basically. Um, from LSU. Yes, that is correct. Right? Um, um, and not even recognizing what LSU was, but just kind of <laughs> liking that you had this jersey, and that really set you off on this amazing journey. Yeah, so that's, it's, a, it's a really interesting story, and in the interest of time, I'll just kind of give the highlights. But essentially, yes, I received a sweatshirt uh, from my mother, and I believe she acquired it from a thrift store. I believe it was called Village Thrift at mm -hmm. the time. I could be wrong about that. It still exists. And, um, and yeah, and the shirt basically read LSU Tigers. At the time, I didn't realize that LSU was an acronym, so I called it LSU Tigers. <laughs> <laughs> and I love the shirt so much, uh, I kind of became infatuated with anything that was LSU or, you know, LSU. So I wanted a LSU Tiger. Uh, for a pet, <laughs> uh, even though I didn't, again, know what it was. I also uh, just, you know, really wanted to be affiliated with it. So once I found out that it was a school, uh, in fact, the gentleman who told me that it was a school, his name was James, um, he said that uh, it was a school for big kids. Mm. And it just planted a seed in my mind that I wanted to go to this school for big kids. And, and so how old were you at the time? That would have been second grade. Okay, yeah, second so like grade. eight, yeah. maybe, seven or eight. Okay, um, so yeah. you're, you're in second grade, mm -hmm. you discover the Lasso Tigers, mm -hmm. you're super excited <laughs> to mm -hmm. become a big kid so mm -hmm. you can go to, to, to Lasso, and get, LSU. And get more Lasso apparel. And get more Lasso apparel. <laughs> So you're, you go all the way through, you know, you do grade school, you do mm -hmm. junior high, you mm -hmm. go through high school, mm -hmm. um, and go through high school mm -hmm. in a city where it's not a given mm -hmm. that kids are going to go to college, mm -hmm. right? I would say that, uh, yeah, I, you know, there are some unfortunate truths that I think uh, attend kind of what my experience was. As I said, one was, you know, growing up in a, in a single parent household. Uh, I know that's not the case for everyone. It was the case for us. And then, you know, the high school that I went to, Woodrow Wilson High School, which I think very fondly of, but yeah, you know, it had your, you know, typical spectrum of inner city outcomes. So you had children who excelled, who went on to do uh, great things, go to college, and, you know, obviously make a gainful living for themselves. And then you had others who opted uh, sometimes of their own volition, sometimes you know, because of coercive forces around them uh, to pursue other avenues of uh, maturation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, yes, I was lucky. I was able to uh, apply to and get into LSU. Mm -hmm. 
uh, which was my first school. It was my REACH school. I, that wasn't the term back then. Yeah. <laughs> so it was the only school that I really wanted to go to. Uh, and so I got in, and yes, I. It, it's not so much that I took it for granted, but I certainly had a naive amount of confidence that that was going to be my outcome. And part of that naivete, I believe, helped make the process less uh, traumatic for me. Mm. It was just kind of, I just kind of coasted into the next phase of my life. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So you went from Camden to LSU, which yes. was um, maybe the, the farthest place you had traveled? Yes. Uh, I, was, I was a track and field athlete in high school. So we did uh, track meets where we traveled to various parts of New Jersey, obviously going to the Penn Relays. Uh, and then for our class trip, we went to Colonial Williamsburg yep. in Virginia. Virginia, yeah. And, uh, but yeah, that was as far as I'd been. I'd certainly never been on a plane before. Uh, so yes, going to LSU was, was quite an adventure. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. So you, you went to LSU, you were successful at LSU, you graduated from LSU, and then you decided you were going to be a lawyer. So no, the decision to become a lawyer was probably right around the same time I decided to go to LSU. So as a, as a young man, I, for whatever reason, had these ambitions that were really, they couldn't invest until much later in life. So, you know, one of them was going to LSU. Again, I really didn't have a sense of what a big kid going to school was, but that was just an aspiration. Uh, I also wanted to be an attorney. Um, and so, you know, those were statements I was making before I, before I got my first diploma from, <laughs> from mm -hmm. fifth grade. Uh, and so... And what was appealing <clears throat> about being a lawyer? So, uh, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a funny story. Uh, I only I remember the portion of it that you know to me strikes me as humorous. It may be a little bit more complicated than this in its actual genesis, but essentially you would only ever hear people speak with any great prestige about the professions uh, medicine, law, and engineering. So everyone would say, you know, oh, you want to be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, and that just seemed like mm. something I heard various times uh, in, in my youth. And so it was really for me a process of elimination mm -hmm. uh, that I did not want to be a doctor. Um, and again, based off of what I knew a doctor to be, who likes going to hospitals, who mm -hmm. likes going to uh, have these uh, individuals examine you or draw blood <laughs> or give you needles. Uh, so I didn't want to be part of that experience. Uh, at the time, I had a, a very naive sense of what an engineer was. I only knew them to be individuals who conducted uh, trains, who, 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 you know, right. made the trains go. Right. <laughs> and, and again, I'm trying to uh, capture it uh, based off of that understanding. Obviously, I've learned better since then. Sure. <laughs> but at the time, that was my naive sense, my very narrow sense of what an engineer was. And as cool as I thought trains were, I didn't want to have anything to do with that because, and, and this is the honest goodness truth, I, I say this and it makes me feel foolish for even saying it out loud, but I didn't want to be an engineer because trains couldn't turn. Uh, and so it was basically <laughs> like you can't turn left or right if you're driving a train. And I just thought that was very confining. And, yeah. and, and again, I, I think back on that and it, it's amazing how strong of a sense that was for me because that was what ruled that out. Um, and so being a lawyer was essentially what was left. Uh, and then coupled with that, I had a relative, uh, specifically my uncle, um, who around that time, maybe a little bit before, maybe a little bit after, had set out to become an attorney himself. So mm -hmm. it was reinforced through, um, you know, someone who I, I uh, was a role model to me. And so it seemed like, you know, a no-brainer at that point. So third grade, second grade, third grade, that was around the time when I made the decision to become an attorney, and it worked out. Great. So, I mean, that's one of those things where you can make that decision when you're a little kid, and then mm -hmm. by the time you get older, you say, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, but that's not what happened for you. No. There, there's a saying that I often find myself uh, falling back on, uh, really with anything in, in my life, uh, that I don't change over time so much as I become a more concentrated version of the person I already was. Mm. So for me, this speaks to that. 
uh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty headstrong in that way. That is to say, if I make my mind up to do something, I'm going to do it, I'm going to follow through. Uh, I, I personally have a, a, a sense of uh, loyalty to myself. Mm -hmm. If I promise myself I'm going to do something, I, I try to get it done. And so I think it's really an extension of that. But candidly, as I move through life, it was only reinforced by everything that I found interesting. Uh, and so whether it was civil rights issues, whether it was police brutality issues, whether it was, you know, just knowing how to navigate what seemed to me like the very uh, raw lifestyle of adulthood, it, it just seemed like having a legal education uh, would be an advantage because you weren't in a position where you needed to rely on someone else to help you resolve a matter, an unfortunate matter that you found yourself in. Mm -hmm. So whether it was you know, being evicted or child custody, you know, these were all things that I saw uh, played out in uh, people's lives that surrounded me. And it always would seem like there was this sense that a lawyer was needed. One either you know, couldn't be afforded to the person or you know, they didn't have the means to, to pay for an attorney. And so it always seemed like you know, their situation would uh, become exacerbated based mm -hmm. off of, of that. So everything just reinforced like, yeah, law's the way to go, law's the way to go, because then you don't have to deal with any of these issues. Right. <laughs> so at least you can deal with them uh, you know, more formidably. Right. So, mm -hmm. so uh, you finished college. Mm -hmm. um, and then came back to New Jersey? That is correct. So okay. when I but not immediately to law school. No, not immediately to law school. Um, when I graduated from college, ideally I would have, you know, rolled right into law school uh, for reasons of, you know, lack of uh, not taking the LSAT and uh, also kind of having, when I was in high school and in college I developed a passion for fitness, health and fitness and so that became part of the strategy to become an attorney because it would allow me to make a living uh, and afford me an income that I could use to to pay off or you know pay my way through school uh, and so yes ideally I would have flowed directly into law school uh, but it seemed to be the more wise move I should say to have a profession that I can work in, that I can make money in, that I could, you know, uh, build some work experience before moving on to law school. So, mm -hmm. yeah, so that's, so there was about, I guess, from 2003 until, I graduated in 2003, and then I enrolled into Rutgers Camden in 2007, so about a four-year layover. Okay. Yeah. So I want to, obviously, I want to talk about law school and then talk about your mm -hmm. legal career, but mm -hmm. I also am just sort of curious about what you kind of knew about Rutgers Camden as a kid growing up in Camden. I had an internship actually uh, at a law office and the law firm uh, basically said, yeah, you're going to be, uh, you want to do legal research. And when I would report to work, they would just drop me off at the Camden Law Library. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and there's a word to this day that just, it does something to me. It makes me smile, it makes me cringe. It really embodies that sense of being an attorney uh, that I had as a, a young person that I've never really been able to shed myself of just when this word is invoked, but shepherdizing. You were shepherdizing in books? I was shepherdizing Fantastic. in books. Fantastic. And I, candidly, I was not shepherdizing. I was just, it was just basically to me, uh, dictionaries with uh, with entries that weren't quite linear. Yeah. You know, it was just like, you know, you're just looking at cases. And But that said, that experience uh, was really my first blush of what Rutgers Camden was. Anytime I walked in there, I, I can still recall the, the smell of the air. Mm -hmm. uh, I can still remember the smell of the pages of the books. Um, and not to de-romanticize, if that's a word, the experience, it wasn't inherently appealing to me. Mm -hmm. It was a means to an end. Yeah. And I saw the value in it, and so I just put my nose down and I did it. Uh, but I couldn't tell you one thing I learned from that summer, if mm -hmm. anything. 
Uh, you learned how to get to the Camden I Library. I learned how to get to the Camden <laughs> Library, and I learned that the only way to become an attorney is to somehow arrive at a point where you know what you're doing when you're doing this. So yeah. Got it. Yeah, so that was my first, uh, my, my first bus with it. Thereafter, obviously, once I did my research and looked into the various schools and programs, uh, Workers Camden to me was, um, it was a place I wanted to always go, but just never really had the awareness of it. Mm -hmm. uh, but it made an abundant amount of sense. There was sentimental value. There was obviously the school is fantastic. So it had uh, prestige associated with it. It had um, a brand uh, associated with it that I thought would translate well as someone who wanted to practice in New Jersey. So it, it checked off all the boxes logically. Uh, but truthfully for me, I think the main reason why I wanted to go was because I saw it as somewhat of the completion of a circle. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, starting, you know, receiving my first degree here in the city of Camden and then receiving, you know, my terminal degree here in the city of Camden just mm -hmm. for me was, and, and I'm not saying this to disparage any other school, but I could have been accepted by any other school uh, in the nation and I still would have chose Rutgers Camden for that reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's talk about law school okay. a little bit. Okay. Right. <laughs> what was that transition like? Uh, so I was coming off of having spent, you know, four years in the real world mm -hmm. working, uh, and I use that in rabbit ears. People in podcast land can't see me put up the rabbit ears. <laughs> and so it was a welcome uh, return back to academia uh, within this idea of becoming an attorney. I also had ambitions on uh, becoming a professor ultimately. And so for me, I was a kid in the candy store. That said, law school is difficult. <laughs> law school is challenging, uh, particularly if you don't have a blueprint on how things get done in law school. And so notwithstanding the fact that I, I certainly had people who I probably could have tapped to get a better sense of what that was, uh, for reasons that, you know, at this point I, I feel uh, more embarrassed to say, but I just didn't take advantage of it. Um, I, I just didn't follow through on, on some of the resources that I had. Uh, but for that reason, I really arrived at law school completely, uh, not overwhelmed, but it was literally a figure it out one day at a time experience. Mm -hmm. uh, even though I'd done my research and all that kind of stuff. The faculty here, uh, as a matter of fact, I, I stopped and I met with uh, probably the person who I would consider to be the, my first ally in the school when I got here, Professor Nissen. Uh, she and I made a connection very early on, uh, and you know that connection continues into this day. I'm, I'm very fond of her, and she's been instrumental uh, with uh, with every phase of, of me completing law school. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. And Professor Nissen, of course, is in charge of our academic support here mm -hmm. at the law school. Mm -hmm. So you made it through, mm -hmm. <laughs> got mm -hmm. your got your degree, mm -hmm. got your JD, mm -hmm. um, and then started practicing law. So I, I wish it was that simple. Mm -hmm. I did start practicing law, but there was an interim in between when I started practicing law and when I graduated. You know, candidly, uh, I, I did not pass the bar exam my first go round. Uh, or my second go round, mm -hmm. or my third go round. Mm -hmm. I passed it on my fourth try. So for me, uh, that was not just a test of my dedication, a test of uh, my commitment to what my goal was that I set when I was in second or third grade, uh, but it also allowed me to learn and, uh, and appreciate in a way that I probably really hadn't prior to that how much of a privilege it would be to become an attorney. And again, this is not to compare myself to anyone else, but every day I wake up, I have some sense of the privilege that I enjoy as someone who can represent themselves uh, in a court of law as an attorney. And say, you know, Charles E. Ray, you know, <laughs> attorney <laughs> at law. And um, that that experience for me when I, I was trying to pass the bar exam, probably, I can say this now, at the time I, I may have said something different, but probably was one of the most formative experiences of my life. Mm -hmm. yeah, just because 
so close yet so far. Right. You know, and um, I remember reading, it was an article uh, that basically reported on the pass rates for the various schools, you know, uh, uh, Rutgers, Temple, Drexel, UPenn, and all those things. And, um, and I remember there was a footnote, after, you know, because I'm reading it, maybe it's my second time not passing the marks in. Mm-hmm. And I'm just trying to get this, I'm like, well, okay, what's going on here? You know, right. it just, just, just feels um, like hazing in, in a way. <laughs> um, but I remember the article referenced that um, it doesn't chart the pass rates for people after the fourth try because uh, the number was so statistically low I remember thinking like, so maybe that wasn't going into my fourth try. So that mm-hmm. would have been my, so I remember thinking like, that's a terrible omen. <laughs> that's a terrible, terrible omen. But that said, uh, you know, ultimately I, I passed and, you know, it's one of those things, uh, you know, now it's, I guess to the extent this podcast is disseminated at large, it's public knowledge, but it's one of the things that I, I'm oddly proud of. Um, this idea that, you know, whether you are, you know, uh, someone who's in law school or just graduated law school and taking a bar exam, uh, that ultimately, you know, with uh, a certain amount of dedication, a certain amount of belief in yourself, um, that even against odds that are uh, pretty, you know, pretty vaulted, you know, you can you can still achieve your dream of becoming an attorney. Absolutely. So, yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. I mean, I mm. think, you know, we're, we're in the midst of, of bar season mm-hmm. right now. I actually did mm. a, a tweet storm this morning mm-hmm. <laughs> for mm-hmm. folks mm-hmm. Um, who are taking the bar exam. But, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, you put all this effort into mm-hmm. graduating and mm-hmm. getting your JD, and there, mm-hmm. there's this last yeah. barrier that you have to jump over. Yeah. Um, and everybody doesn't do it yeah. on the first time, right? But whether yeah. you pass the first time or the fourth time, you're still a lawyer. Yeah. Right. right, and so having that sort of sense of mm-hmm. you know stick to it, mm-hmm. um, and one of the other things that you talked about that I want to just really reinforce because I think it's so important mm-hmm. um, is is tapping your resources. Yeah. Right, yeah. I mean one of the things that I think is really great about what we do here mm-hmm. is trying to figure out how to give people the resources mm-hmm. that they need, whether mm-hmm. they're first gen mm-hmm. coming to law school or mm-hmm. somebody who's fifth gen mm-hmm. um, coming to law school. Mm-hmm. Um, you talked about Professor Nissen, mm-hmm. um, but what, what are some of the ways in which she was a resource to you, right? a support person for you as you went through law school? Uh, so I, I should say I, I only specifically named Professor Nissen because I saw her immediately before mm-hmm. walking in today, but there were many resources that I had. So Professor Nissen, uh, Dean Baker, uh, Camille Andrews, um, uh, Dean Beckerman, uh, you know, Professor Bosniak, Professor Harvey, Professor Cohen. Uh, <laughs> I'm not just naming people that I, I had classes with. I'm, I'm naming people who, uh, at certain points, uh, very memorable points during my time here, uh, I was able to have a discussion or two or a dozen <laughs> with and really help get me, you know, from, you know, beginning of the semester to mid-semester, mid-semester to end of semester. And the first thing I would say that, or the common bond, the common thread that unites all of those people that I just met or just named was the fact that they were all uh, accessible and, and welcoming. I found it to be extremely support-based. The professors and, and their approach to teaching and administrating uh, this law school. So uh, specifically Professor Nissen, I, I, I can say this about her, uh, that it was her personality, uh, the warmth of her personality, the, the care that just went into her interests in, in me as a student, and her questions that basically allowed me to um, share my story with her and, and her remembering it and us being able to use that as a foundation for anything uh, that, I, that, that came about while I was here. Uh, I found that to be the case with, with most of the individuals that I just now named. And, and for me, that, that's huge. It's, it's the human element. It's the part of it that makes the students feel like 
even though they're administrators or teachers or professors, uh, that they can relate to what you're going through because one, they've either been there before, or two, they've just grown expert in recognizing what the needs of an incoming 1L student is and able to convert that into a foundation for a much more enduring relationship thereafter. And I had that with all of those individuals. So, Talk to me a little bit about what the Rutgers Law degree has allowed you to do. <clears throat> it is, in no uncertain terms, um, probably the most liberating force uh, that I've acquired in my life uh, because it really allowed and allows me to, in, in a public setting, uh, to communicate without having to do anything demonstrative um, that I'm someone who is competent, that I'm someone who can get things done, and that I can be um, charged with certain responsibilities. Uh, and again, we're talking now in a, in a legal context um, where there are real things at stake and in turn be entrusted to make sure that those things are protected. Uh, that's, a, that's a very generic way of saying that, uh, excuse me, that's a very circuitous way <laughs> of saying uh, that it's allowed me to become the person I always aspired to be. Um, without necessarily having to tell anyone that that's who I want to be. Mm -hmm. It's just assumed that if you're a Rutgers uh, Law School graduate, that you have certain abilities. Mm -hmm. and, and it's not versus another school or anything like that. It, it's, it's really just um, an entity uh, and a, an endowment unto itself. It's just, yeah, you're good. Mm -hmm. you know, what can, what can you do for us or what can we do for you? Right. Uh, so it's, it's an extremely uh, liberating force in that sense because it allows you to not have to uh, qualify yourself. You're kind of, you're, you're good until you mess up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, you're, you're, you're given the, um, the credence of someone who deserves to be, uh, who deserves a seat at the table. Right. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. Excellent. So one of the other pieces that I want to talk to you about mm -hmm. um, is um, your experiences as a black man, mm -hmm. um, in particular because mm -hmm. you see fewer black men graduating from college, mm -hmm. um, fewer black men going to law school or graduating mm -hmm. from law school mm -hmm. or being out in the world as practicing mm -hmm. attorneys. Mm -hmm. um, so could you talk a little bit about um, whether you feel like that creates particular responsibilities for you mm -hmm. um, out there in the world that you have to carry around, mm -hmm. and, and if so, what those are and, mm -hmm. and how they play themselves out. Uh, I think that's a, I think it's a very um, deep question uh, because my instinctive answer is absolutely. There are facets to being a black man, irrespective of being an attorney, uh, that gives you a unique perspective and a unique trajectory in our society. I would say that uh, being a black man with a college degree, being a black man with a law degree, being a black man with a license to practice law further distinguishes that experience. And so <clears throat> to answer, I guess, the, the initial thrust of your question, uh, do I feel any additional responsibilities? I do but they're not burdensome mm. at all. Mm -hmm. Like they're completely, like you embrace it. It's, it's you know, I'm, I'm not comparing myself to anyone else or my experience to anyone else's experience, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. It is absolutely uh, life in its most sentient sense. You know, you, you have all of these exposures and all of these experiences and you get to take in all this information and feel all these things and interact and engage with society in a way that without those uh, attributes attending you, you know, you, you may not 
have uh, the, the engagement, so to, to put it into practice. Uh, <clears throat> it happens more often than anyone that I'm collegial with would care to admit, but you know, you walk into a courtroom and you know, there's reserved seating typically for attorneys. This could be superior court, municipal court, what have you. And, um, and there is an unfortunate perception, at least initially when you walk in, uh, are you counsel or are you a defendant? Mm -hmm. And I, more times than I, I can count, uh, have been assumed to be a defendant. And in no way, shape, or form have I ever been, you know, uh, you hear people you know, say, oh, it's insulting or anything like that. It's not. It's a symptom of some of the ills of, in our society. Uh, and some of the stereotypes that, that help uh, keep these things going. Uh, but yeah, so you have that experience, right? And, and that's, that's a very simple sort of, you know, just put a ribbon on it and, and, and pack it away. <laughs> uh, but you have other ones that are the obverse, you know, where someone sees you, and I've been in courtrooms where there was um, a disproportionate amount of African-American or black Americans uh, present, and they see you, and they recognize you as counsel, and the amount of pride, and the amount of esteem, and the amount of head nods, and mm -hmm. uh, winked eyes that you get. And, and I say winked eyes, not in a flirtatious right, sense. Right. I'm saying. <laughs> I got it. Purely, purely as like, I see. Like, right, I, I right. See that right. acknowledgement, absolutely. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, that is, I mean, it's beautiful. It's, it's beautiful. It's something that uh, I wish were not the case. But if it's going to be the case, I want to experience it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I think that being African-American or being a black American uh, male definitely makes the makes my status as an attorney uh, more interesting. You know, I'm sorry if I didn't get to all of the points to your question, but yeah, it, it definitely plays a role. And to me, I'll even go one step further. Um, it's inseparable. Um, and, and, and very sometimes obvious and sometimes not so obvious ways. So I read the law through the lens of someone with a certain amount of life experience that didn't always align with uh, the law purports to be. So sometimes your interactions with uh, law enforcement, sometimes your interactions with uh, society at large, you know, well, oftentimes, I find that I have the sense of things of someone who isn't endowed with the ability to practice law. Mm -hmm. Because that's that's just you know I spent the first thirty years of my life not being able to practice law. You can't separate out you know what the aggregate effect of those sensibilities are. That said, once you passed the bar exam and now you are capable of practicing law, it puts a total different spin on it. And, and now that same, that those same sensibilities you carry now function to make you more sympathetic mm -hmm. in your capacity as an attorney. Mm -hmm. And it functions to make you more understanding and, you know, it's been my experience that it makes me a better advocate when the interests involved are those that align with uh, the interests of the people that I'm most familiar with. Mm -hmm. And um, <clears throat> again, these are more circuitous ways of, of saying that me being an attorney and me being a black male are inseparable. Uh, and I think it makes me a better attorney. Uh, it, it makes me a better attorney than I would be if I did not have um, that dual experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's great. I mean, there, so there are a couple things there that I that are just so important, mm -hmm. um, and that I think are really 
fundamental, at least to the way that I think about mm -hmm. teaching law mm -hmm. and teaching folks to think about their law career. One mm -hmm. is, or their legal career, mm -hmm. one is that we should always bring a critical eye mm -hmm. to the law, mm -hmm. right? That, we, that mm -hmm. you can't just assume it's all objective, mm -hmm. that so much of law mm -hmm. is deeply subjective. Mm -hmm. um, and second, that you should bring your whole self to the practice of mm -hmm. law. Um, you know, one of the things that I say to students is, you know, you go to work every day, but you have to go home at night mm -hmm. and live with what you've done, mm -hmm. you know, at your mm -hmm. office. And so mm -hmm. really sort of um, being conscious of who is the person that I want to be mm -hmm. in the world? Mm -hmm. What is the work that I want to put out into the world? And mm -hmm. how do I want to use my law degree in mm -hmm. a way where I go home at night and put my head down on the pillow? I can feel good Absolutely. about the choices that I, that I made that day. Absolutely. Um, so talk, I know that you're not... You, you, you've moved out of mm -hmm. um, practicing law, per se, so we'll mm -hmm. get to that a little bit at the end. Okay. Um, but uh, um, what kind of law were you practicing? Okay, so before I <laughs> answer this question, uh, and, and at the risk of correcting uh, you know, the person who uh, I have no business correcting right now, I technically, I still do practice law, and I will continue to practice law. I just okay. want to get, get my fi myself fired from doing a podcast. <laughs> my employer finds out the hard way, like, oh, Charles is not going to be here anymore. Um, no, I still practice law, and I will continue to practice law, but my roles uh, have, will, will somewhat change. Uh, I currently practice law full-time, and I teach part-time. And that's how, that's what I've been doing for the last seven or eight years. Um, that will flip and I will go into teaching full time and practicing on a part time basis. Uh, so within my capacity as a attorney, uh, I work for a law firm in Flemington, New Jersey by the name of Kaczynski and Rotono. And it's a you know pretty lean two men outfit at this point. Uh, it's uh, Tony and myself. The uh, founding partner, Mr. Kaczynski, has retired, and so for the most part, it's just Tony and I. And it's a general practice. And I say general practice. I think uh, it's not a term that you hear many uh, people use anymore because so many attorneys, I believe, opt to specialize because. It, you know, it is, uh, it's a lot. <laughs> so it, there, there are a lot of, type of types of law that you can practice. And so uh, being a general practitioner, I think, uh, has its set of drawbacks. But within that, uh, with that said, I do, uh, obviously, criminal defense. Uh, we do municipal court, so traffic court. Um, we also do family law. We also do workers' compensation. We also do real estate closings. Last wills uh, for for people. That's that's and, funny. And family <laughs> family law. Right, right. So and and what's funny is, you know, because we we do it all, it just in my my sense, it just blurs into what it means to be an attorney. Uh, it, it's only when I have a conversation with someone who specializes do I realize like oh oh wow like people actually you know have no idea what workers' compensation court. Is all about, mm -hmm. and so my first job as an attorney was working for the law firm that I currently work for, and Tony, Mr. Gachinsky are, I mean, consummate professionals who are very good at each of those areas of law, and so what's also amazing, or what's also been uh, part of this experience for me as an attorney, is that I've had. Uh, as my two quote bosses, uh, two people who are expert in about you know seven or eight different areas of law, and with that experience, it made me realize that that's the type of attorney that I wanted to be. Even though initially, you know, I think part of my motivation to become an attorney was you know I wanted to do civil rights and constitutional law, and those things are still near and dear to my heart. Um, it's just that for all practical purposes, I ended up being presented with an opportunity to be a general practitioner, and now I wouldn't trade it for the world. Mm -hmm. uh, I once remarked to someone who was uh, trying to condescend me based off of the fact that I was a general practitioner. It's like, oh, oh that means that, you know, uh, he said something to the effect of um, uh, jack of all trades, master of none. And it, he said it in a sense to kind of like, it was like a dig. It's another attorney. 
Uh, and then my response, without even really thinking about it, but just knowing that uh, I, I would not stand for him sort of thinking he won up me with that statement uh, because I, I, I think he missed the big picture. My response was uh, relevant in all things, irrelevant in none. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and for me, that to me really embodies the uh, best part about being a general practitioner, which is virtually anyone who has a bad day or who has an interaction with the court or with the law uh, can reach out to me and I can, or my firm, and we can provide guidance, we can provide counsel and representation in the event that they choose to go with us. So, yeah, I, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy that facet of what I do as a practicing attorney. And for that reason, even though I'm going to transition into academia in the fall, full time, I would not part with that because <laughs> it's, it, it's just, it's very empowering, very, very empowering. So tell us quickly um, where and what mm -hmm. you're teaching. So I will be teaching at Ryder University, which is in Lawrenceville, New Jersey. Uh, and in the fall, I will be assuming the position of lecturer in their uh, College of Business Administration. And I will be teaching business ethics, or excuse me, legal ethics courses uh, to business students. So um, it will start off with uh, me teaching legal ethics at both the undergraduate and the graduate level. Yeah. Terrific. Congratulations. Thank you very much. It's Welcome to Dream come true. Dream come true. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to ask you two more questions, okay. and then um, I'm going I'm to let you stop talking. Okay. Um, so the first question is, and again, you know, we're in bar season. Who knows when it, would, when it will be when people listen to this, but mm -hmm. we can play it back every bar season. What advice do you have for folks who are preparing to take the bar right now? <clears throat> I, I think advice is, is a strong word. I, I would more practice as I'll share with I'll share with the listeners what a part of my experience has been and they can take it or leave it. Um, but the angst that I carried with me the first time I took the bar exam, uh, I I wish I had the sense of the moment to uh, be able to sort of uh, be more calm about it and have a little bit more confidence in myself. Uh, because I feel like, you know, it's a performance-based exam. And so there's a stamina component, there is a recall component, how much can you recall? And then there's sort of, you know, can you crack the, can you identify what the question is actually asking and not be distracted by, you know, all of the other things that may attend uh, you discerning what the correct answer is. And I'm talking about both for the multiple choice and for the writing. And so I think nerves and angst, notwithstanding the fact that I think they demonstrate that the, the individual cares, um, I think that sometimes they can override our sense of everything we've done to get there. And if you can just take stock of, you would not be here if you hadn't earned the opportunity. And there is no sense that you're going to do poorly operating in anyone else's mind except for yours. The only people who really doubt, or the greatest doubt is usually found in an individual's um, experiencing it. And so for me, if, if I could just go back in time and carry that sense, I think that my trajectory would have been uh, slightly less dilatory, let's mm -hmm. say. Mm -hmm. um, and then, by transitive property, when I did take the exam and I was able to pass, uh, candidly, I was headed to the beach after the exam. <laughs> um, I worked out the morning <laughs> of the exam. Um, I could not have been more laid back, more... I, it was confidence, but not in a way that I can ever recapture. It was just, it was, it was my time. Mm -hmm. and, and, I, and I knew it going into it. And so um, all of that is attitudinal. All of that is uh, psychological, um, almost psyching yourself out, if you will. And that's 
the quote rabbit ears advice that I would give. Like realize that part of your performance just depends on how you perceive yourself and how you perceive the opportunity. If it's intimidating to you, um, there will be reminders of that during the, during the exam. If it's not intimidating to you, um, and, and what I mean by not intimidating, if it's something that you embrace and you accept as just part of the process, then you'll meet each one of those moments where you're being challenged in, in like form. You're just, you're just being challenged. No one is trying to sink your ship, so to speak. So it, it's an attitudinal approach. Uh, that, that's the, the best advice I, I think I can, I can offer. Um, how you put yourself in that mindset is completely up to you. I know that for me, <laughs> uh, again, when I was able to pass the bar exam, um, there were so many things that I had going on in my life that were, uh, that I was handling well. Uh, and so the bar exam became an extension of those things uh, versus other times when I was preparing for the bar exam, I just let everything else just kind of fall by the wayside. And candidly, those things were distractions. They took away from my thought energy. They took away from my time and my actual energy. Addressing these things that I saw sort of going up in many flames around me as I dedicated myself, uh, you know, going all in with the bar exam. So, again, that was my experience. I, I, I don't know if it's going to apply to every person's situation, um, but I'm, I feel blessed at this point to have been able to crack that piece of my own mystery, my own puzzle, uh, which allowed me to, to ultimately pass the exam. I should also say, and again, this is purely by way of uh, being transparent to the extent there's any one wondering if I took a Barbary course or PMBR course or anything like that. I did not. So I did not take any of the um, bar prep uh, courses. I, I, you know, for reasons, um, you know, owing purely to my own situation at the time, I had to, you know, opt not to do those things. Um, so that also colored my trajectory. Uh, so without the benefit of those things, or with the benefit of those things, I should say, perhaps uh, it would have been different. But ultimately, uh, I did it without having to rely on those resources. Right, mm -hmm. right. All right, <clears throat> last question. Mm -hmm. um, if you knew someone who was getting ready to start mm -hmm. their first year of law school, mm -hmm. um, what's the one thing you would tell them to make sure to do as a first-year student to be successful? I think this goes back to what I referenced indirectly earlier, which was um, tapping into the resources that are available at the school. It may sound cliche. It, it may even sound completely unoriginal. Uh, but I believe it is so ripe for exploitation. And I, and I use that in a, in a positive sense. Um, you have no idea the amount of uh, resources your resources have, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> which is something that people oftentimes don't, don't think about. They, they think of resources as ending at the resource, but your resources have resources, and part of what makes that individual a resource is that they are willing to leverage those resources in your favor. Uh, and so tapping into your resources, and that means you know going to speak with your professors um, during their office hours, that means Striking up conversations with them if you ever end up in an elevator with them and just not you know, going up the elevator in silence. I can't tell you how many of my professors, either before I take their class or during the time taking their class, that I know they ran out of the elevator like wanting to get away from me because I was trying to make up and force conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but the idea is those moments basically create a little, um, they, they create traction between you and that individual so that there's more grip there when you go to reach out to that person as a resource. You have something that you can trace a prior interaction back to. Um, I remember being in the elevator one time and feeling, so <laughs> um, there were a bunch of people in the elevator. I believe I was the only student at the time. 
And uh, I won't say the full cast of characters there, but it was a who's who of Rutgers Camden. And I remember just feeling like, I need to say something. <laughs> I need to say something profound. I need to say something. <laughs> I need to say something that's going to make me. That's a lot of pressure. It was, it was, it was a hot amount of pressure in there for me because I felt like it was a moment. Now, in reality, the people who were in the elevator probably don't even remember. But I remember they were talking amongst themselves and I just saw fit to, to slide in my own little statement. And I'll never forget it. And it actually really became uh, my philosophy about law moving forward. And even to this day, it's, you know, if I ever became uh, if I ever, if I ever arrived at a point of notoriety uh, for my contributions in the law or academia, I would want it to trace back to this statement. But um, I said, uh, to study law is to study the moral evolution of man. And and I remember I just said that out of a sense of pressure. <laughs> <laughs> but I needed to say something to fit in with this conversation. Uh, and I just remember everyone just kind of looked at me <laughs> as if, like, where the heck did that come from? Uh, and at the time, it was just, it was the only thing that came out of the hat when, when I reached in. Uh, but for all of what I know now, it's just a, a moment of academic panic. <clears throat> a nugget of, of truth sprang from me uh, that I believe endures to this day, and it, it colors the way I practice law and how I conceive of law. To study law is to study the moral evolution of man. Our laws literally tell you what our collective conscience is at every segment along our journey uh, in this country. And so when <laughs> the elevator ride concluded, and I had to fixate on what the heck did I just say and why did I just embarrass myself? Uh, what I ended up feeling was, no, like this is why you came to law school. This is what you were here to learn and to figure out. It just so happens you figured, out, figured it out in an elevator trying to impress some people. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that, for me, is my guiding light. And so when I look at the law, whether it's in practice or in academia, I, I don't look at it as an end-all, be-all. That is to say, what's written down is just part of this larger trajectory for our society to get us to where we're ultimately trying to get, which is to be a more perfect union, a, a better version of ourselves. And, um, and when you're reading the law, you're just looking at the proofs of how far we've come and the evidence of how far we have to go. And so, yeah, that's how I look at it. Well, there's, there's a nice place to end. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today, Charles. This it was is great to have you back pleasure. in the building. It's an honor, it's, I'm very humble, and uh, I can't thank you enough for the opportunity. Thank you. Absolutely. The Power of Attorney is produced by Rutgers Law School. With two locations, minutes from Philadelphia and New York City, Rutgers Law offers the prestige and reputation of a large, nationally known university with a personal small campus experience. Learn more by visiting law.rutgers.edu.